Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Why, hello there and welcome to a beautiful, at least out my door, a beautiful uh, spring day. It's April 7th to be exact. 2021, <clears throat> and uh, as usual, all kinds of stuff we can uh, talk about. I want to start with uh, actually the sports page, which I sometimes do, um, and something that I came across in today's New York Times sports section. Um, I turned the page, and, and they're grinning at me as two shirtless young men. Uh, they're in a locker room, baseball locker room, it turns out. And they are Roberto Clemente and Steve Blass. Uh, two names that Pittsburghers certainly know. And it is a picture taken after the Pirates won the World Series in 1971. And other than being astonished at how Blast looked, <laughs> I mean, I know what he looks like now and this sort of big, goofy looking, sweet faced kid. And then the incredible, handsome Clemente with his arm around him and his hand on his shoulder a study in black and white. And the headline of this story is a conservative sport receives applause for taking a stand. And obviously that should alert you to the fact that this is about Major League Baseball pulling the All-Star game from Atlanta because of the noxious, anti-democratic, in more ways than one, uh, voting law that was passed in that state. Um, let me just, you know, I, rather than paraphrase, I, I'm going to read the first little bit of, of this to you. So I, it's mostly uh, quotes from uh, Blass. Steve Blass pitched in parts of 10 seasons for the Pittsburgh Pirates. He won a World Series title in 71, earned an all-star selection the following season, and retired from the Diamond a few years later. In many ways, he is representative of the average Major League Baseball player. And then Blass speaks. Yeah, I am a conservative, white, former baseball player, that learned things that have become important to me by being in the presence of Roberto Clemente, Willie Stargell, and a, a lot of those guys, and, and watching and admiring Henry Aaron, who embodied, I think, everything good in the game. And then the reporter says, and here is a case in point of what Blass is speaking of. After the assassination, 
of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. Blass watched as his black teammates, including Maury, Wills, Stargell, and Clemente, addressed the team. And in the absence of a Major League Baseball-wide postponement of play, those black members of the team led the Pirates in unanimously deciding to sit out an exhibition game and the first two regular season games. I didn't know that. I mean, an exhibition game is one thing. Two of the first regular season games, the Pirates at the at the behest of their black teammates said yes, unanimously. And that action by the Pirates led other teams to make a similar stance, which resulted in a delay to the start of the Major League Baseball season by a few days. Now, that was all news to me, maybe not to you, but to me it was. And it seems so amazing because I think if baseball is a conservative sport, as the headline says, then Pittsburgh is certainly a conservative town. I don't care that it's democratic. It's a conservative town. And I'm just blown away by this piece of history that I didn't know. But knowing this, the reporter called Steve Blass um, after the announcement last week that uh, the game, the All-Star game, was being pulled from, from Atlanta. And he wanted to see how Blass reacted He applauded, it says, from his home in Florida and said they took it quite simply because the people's rights to vote were being challenged and or threatened. And I'm proud to have been a member of Major League Baseball for taking the stance, the stance, because it's not an easy one. There's probably a lot of sponsorship money involved, but I am glad and Roberto Clemente would have been glad to. And he pointed out that, uh, you know, Major League Baseball was going to uh, make a big point of honoring uh, Henry Aaron um, at at this game. And it certainly, I would imagine, will still do so, but it was going to be doing so in the in the stadium in which um, he played his final games. At least I think it's the same stadium. I don't know. Uh, and and Blass went on to say that he had little doubt that uh, Aaron, too, would have liked Major League Baseball's action, even if it was his town. He always had the rights of the people in the forefront of his heart. Okay, so that's just, I wanted to start with that because it was news to me. And uh, 
I found it uh, interesting and and the kind of historical note that uh, as a Pittsburgher, you can take pride in and the pirates should take pride in, and I'm sure do. But shortly after reading that, I came upon a story which shows why the action is so necessary and why the bill passed in Georgia and others eagerly awaiting passage in Republican legislatures throughout the country, these noxious anti-democratic laws making it harder for people, especially people of color, to vote. Wow. Crystal Mason. Say her name. Crystal Mason. This poor woman can't cut a, get a break. She's 46 years old. She spent time in in jail for a tax, uh, federal tax fraud. She lives in Fort Worth, Texas. And you may have heard of this story, but this story just doesn't seem to end. There never seems to be any resolution. But this is the face of, she is the face of the voter that Republicans want. to squelch black women. And if you look, if you look at all the voters whose votes have been cast off, provisional ballots perhaps that they cast, whatever, uh, in the last 12 years in the state of Texas, the majority are black women. Yeah. So, Crystal Mason had gotten out of jail and was going about getting back her life. And her mom said, hey, Crystal, you know, you should go vote. It's, um, you know, the election's here. Go, go vote. And so she went to her local precinct and they couldn't find her name. And she said, well, I always voted here. And they said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you cast a provisional ballot? And we'll check it later and it will be counted if in fact, for some reason, your name is not here. And she thought, okay, fine, went home to her three children. Well, her ballot was rejected because it was determined that she was not eligible to vote by virtue of the fact that she had this criminal record. And so her ballot was thrown out. She didn't know that she couldn't vote. It had been in the, you know, in small print and a whole bunch of letters that she'd been given on her way out and blah, blah, blah. And she just didn't know. So for this egregious crime, because <clears throat> I don't know about you, but a lot of people's provisional ballots get thrown out and they don't 
get arrested, Crystal Mason got arrested. Prosecutors went after her for voter fraud. She was found guilty and she was sentenced to five years in prison. Her crime, black woman voting. It wasn't enough to not count the vote, which by law, however egregious that law is, by the way, uh, okay. But then to go after her criminally and then a judge sentenced her to five years. I hate to think of all of the sentences of white criminals you could come up with who do things like kill people and don't get five years. She appealed. A three-judge panel, state appellate, Texas appellate court, said, sorry, babe, nah, we're standing with this, the conviction and the sentence. Amazing, huh? The court said, you broke the law. You voted. And you were on supervised release. It didn't matter that she didn't know she was breaking the law. And then the five-year sentence is like, it, it almost seems like it would be a joke. Ha ha. This thing happened when she voted in 2016. Her last chance to avoid prison is coming up, I guess, any minute, because last week the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals agreed to rule on her last appeal, her last chance to avoid prison for daring to vote, a vote that was not counted because the law there was followed and it worked just as these laws work over and over and over again because voter fraud in this country is almost non-existent and when it is found it's just laughably often Republican perpetrating the crime. And so all this Georgia bill and all the others are built, as we know, on an absolute outrageous lie that somehow Donald Trump won the election. And it was stolen from him by voter fraud all over this country especially right here in the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It's a lie. It is a lie. 
and yet Republicans now eagerly trying to fix this problem that doesn't exist, spending all their time trying to figure out how to keep more people from voting. Because when black people vote, they figure they lose. It's fascinating because you think if a party looking at the changing demographics were to be able to look ahead and say, well, you know what? Look, our base is just blindingly white. The country is getting browner and blacker. And we need to reach out and start pulling in those people. But that's not how they react. They react by saying, we need to keep those damn people from voting. And they think they're patriotic Americans. They are now indisputably a party that does not like the very concept of democracy. Letting the people, any people, my God, these black people, letting them vote. You know, a study was just done about um, who were those people uh, that tried to uh, stop our government from working, killing a cop and, uh, and injuring so many others and scaring the bejeebers out of, uh, out of even more. The Capitol insurrection is the date, January 6th, a date that the Republicans are trying to sweep under the rug, a date that will live in infamy. So the numbers are being crunched in as much as we know who these people were, because as they're arrested, more and more and more of them are becoming known. So they're not so much a faceless crowd of marauding seditionists. They are now identifiable. And when you crunch the numbers, as a, uh, a guy named Robert Pape, who's a political scientist, uh, did, he said, you see a common, common pattern of who these people were. And here is that common pattern. They are mainly middle class to upper middle class white men. That's it. Middle class to upper middle class white men. That's who those marauders were. They were not some economically driven folk. And I mean, this, but people can't get in their head who these people are. And they are people that enjoy some status in a white dominated, white male dominated culture. And they are freaked out because of what they see as their decline in status. They look around, I mean, I'm sure, having to see a black man as president of the United States, you know, that's really what made a lot of us go simply berserk. Barack Obama.
And the article that I read uh, um, in this regard was about how in America's history, this same essential cohort, the same demographic of people have risen up whenever that fear of this displacement by others has reared its head. So you got the Know Nothing Party coming up, um, freaking out. You've got um, the KKK rising as blacks are allowed to. You know, you have, this is a constant, constant thread in uh, America's story. And these people, the people who violated our capital, are millions in number. The very things that got them there are not changing. And so this kind of political violence is something that we are going to be seeing because these guys are going to fight till the end. And they've got a lot of tools at their disposal, as you know. They have Fox News. They have that whole right-wingosphere. They have a Supreme Court that's decided that you know, there's no voting issues in the country throughout the Voting Rights Act, for God's sakes, gutted it. So just saying. You know, I've been doing this kind of yapping at people for, God, I don't know what, over 40 years. And there are a few things that I remember doing sort of like alarming uh, Paul Revere type, you know, wake up, wake up. We got this big problem. I There are two issues that I remember trying to excite listeners to. And I mean, I'm going back to the 80s here. And one was about terrorism and about how there was this growing threat uh, of uh, from the, the Muslim world. And of and this was people were there were people that were always paying attention. There were people who were connecting dots and saying, hey, we got to um, we have to be aware of this. We can't be. There is a growing threat out there. And nobody listened. Nobody listened. I remember, you know, reading stuff. There were there would be like uh, retired senators who would try to raise the alarm and would write opinion pieces that, you know, people read and then forgot about and I do remember like saying, hey, this is something, this is something we, I mean, are you aware of this? Are you aware of this guy named Osama bin Laden? Well, you know what happened. 
And then we reacted because that's what we do. Maybe that's human nature. You can't get people, at least I know in this country, you can't get them to explore uh, threats and or issues that they do not have an immediate experience of. You can't say to them, hey, in 10 years, uh, if things keep going like they are, this horrible thing could happen. And the response you get from the American people and the American media generally is, yeah, okay, well, wake me up when it does. So that was one, and the other was global <laughs> warming. And um, I remember, you know, I would read these articles and they would scare the hell out of me. And I remember having read one about what we were doing to the, the ozone layer and to the oceans and how everything was warming up and oh my God, and here's what's going to happen as a result of you. Bah, 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 bah. And I remember this show where I was saying, do you understand this is going to upend the globe? This is going to create huge movements of people, refugees, people who are fleeing drought and other horrors, starvation. This is going to upend everything. You will have some countries trying to keep these people out. You will have other countries trying to, in some way, alleviate the issue. You are going to, and, and you know what? Did we do anything? Yeah, really. I bring it up. What made me think about this is a front page story today in the New York Times about Honduras. Honduras and Guatemala are the two countries that most of these refugees, these desperate people, we are seeing trying to get into our country. Do we even know why? Well, I thought it was because of, they have in many respects pretty much failed governments They've got gangs running cities and their neighborhoods and terrorizing people. They've got so much economic misery that, you know, they're willing to take these desperate, desperate actions. They're not unaware of how the United States is dealing with this issue. They know their odds aren't great, but they're that desperate. Okay. Well, what I read today is, in this story, that the tipping point, the thing that probably forced a lot of these people who otherwise were going to sort of stay and endure it, something happened last year, last fall, that was the last straw for many of them. Honduras was hit by two huge hurricanes run right after the other. They wiped out whole towns. We didn't pay any attention. We pay attention to our hurricanes, not their hurricanes. But there are people who are living in on, on top of the debris and the mud 
that then fell onto what was their home. They're living there. They're living under bridges. They are without anything. And so the majority of families and these unaccompanied children that we are seeing are coming from Honduras and Guatemala that already had all of these troubles, but these much more violent hurricanes, and get ready, they're going to keep on coming, direct results of global warming or climate change, right? And it made me think of that scary story I had read and that I tried to pass on to the audience back in the 80s, saying that there would be desperate refugees, huge masses of people moving, trying to get to a place where they could actually live, where they could find work, where they could feed their children and provide them shelter. And then we look at what's happening and we just see, we see a problem for us. We're just, I don't know. As I said, wake me up when it's, when it's over. Hey, remember the obit that I had some questions about, I couldn't figure out, matriarch of a local family dying and beautiful obituary about or even an obituary from the paper, a special one. And um, in mentioning her survivors, um, they mentioned, I think it was two sons and a daughter. And then all of a sudden the next day, this whole other different kind of obit, same woman, popped up and it was from another son who was not mentioned in the original obit. You remember all that? And I, for the life of me, (laughs) couldn't figure out what the heck. Well, I got an email from an anonymous source and I'm not going to share all of it because, well, it sounds like I don't want to get in trouble with this guy. Um, this is somebody who says he he knows the uh, the person who wrote that second the, the the son that didn't get mentioned. Oh, I'm sorry, I've lost my. I can't believe this happened. Wait a minute. Just as I'm talking to you about this, I lose the screen. Are you kidding me? Hang on. Hang on. Oh shit. Okay, never mind. I'm I'm all screwed up here as usual. Um, Anyway, this guy just says that that, the son that's unmentioned, he says he's got an, well, he was, as I said, he was, uh, he signed his name. His name was Alfonso Costa. And the um, emailer says to me, He thinks this is the guy that Trump pardoned. Now, again, I'm not sure he was doing something with his medical stuff that wasn't quite right. He 
according to the anonymous emailer, this guy was pardoned by Trump, was also tight with Ben Carson. Um, and some of the adjectives that this guy describes him with are potentially slanderous, but I will say one, that he is scary. So I'm just saying, I'm not talking anymore about this, okay? I'm not, I'm done. I'm done. I'm going to have to shut down my damn thing because I can't get control of my computer. You know, I'm not. All right, all right. Hang on here. Shut down. And now I probably won't be able to get it back up, but I hope if I, if Jesus Christ, no, it's just, it's, it's, it's like frozen. I can't do a thing. You don't want to hear this. Okay. I, I don't blame you, but, um, all right. Doing the best I can. Um, okay. You know what? I don't understand. I don't under. I don't understand anything anymore. I'm just. I'm. I'm just in a perpetual state of knitted brow. Why is having proof that you've been vaccinated? They're calling it a you know vaccine passports or vaccine whatevers. Uh, yeah. They, they, why is that? now the next thing that Republicans are freaking out about. I mean, it seems like a pretty reasonable thing that after going through this terrifying, and we're still going through it, right, crisis, um, that there should then be a, uh, a secure way to that every one of us can present proof that we have been vaccinated so that maybe we'll be able to go into a, uh, a concert or um, a store or whatever. I mean, th there are colleges now that are saying they won't let students back until they, uh, until they show proof. So showing proof of being vaccinated is, um, it just seems like a, the next reasonable step that any society would take after this, uh, this terrifying thing. So of course you see immediately the governors of Florida, Texas, Mississippi, all those, you know, states we look up to for great governance. Uh, they're issuing executive orders, these governors, these Republicans, Governor Abbott, Texas, he's uh, released an executive order barring both state agencies and private companies from receiving any, any funds ever from the state if they require proof of vaccination. Now, you know, governmental entities like, like school boards, the Army, they've been requiring vaccinations for 
getting in, for being, uh, countries won't, you can't travel to some countries unless you are able to prove uh, you've been inoculated against, uh, you know, certain diseases that, that um, kill people. And, and I mean, this has been the case in the United States since uh, there was a Supreme Court case in 1905 in which Justice Harlan wrote, a community has the right to protect itself against an epidemic of disease which threatens the safety of its members. Duh. I mean, I love this quote. There's a, a law professor at Harvard who cut to the chase. He says, look, I mean, on the face of things, requiring proof of vaccination is a lot like uh, no shoes, no shirt, no service. Yeah. We've always allowed restaurants, companies to set rules of who... <coughs> Why would this be? And of course, for the Republicans, all of a sudden, again, it has something to do with like liberty. You know, businesses are very fearful that customers like me ain't going to be coming back unless they can assure us that their their place is uh, safe. And they can do that by asking everyone who comes through their door to show them vaccination, right? But all kinds of questions are being raised, ethical questions, legal questions. Can businesses require employees? Can businesses require customers? I mean, the vaccine is ostensibly a voluntary thing. And on top of it, it's even uh, doesn't have total FDA uh, approval. But legal experts who are weighing in say, I mean, the answer to these questions is, yeah. I mean, generally it is yes. But strangely, The Biden White House is not saying it approves of the idea. Here is the press secretary. The government is not now, nor will we be supporting a system that requires Americans to carry a credential. There will be no federal vaccination database and no federal mandate requiring everyone to obtain a single vaccination credential. Now, this goes against the administration's own Department of Health and Human Services because uh, that department recently held a uh, a conference call with uh, state leaders and local health officials who are stunned that the administration is not taking the lead. 
the chief medical officer of um, the of association of all these state health officials said, <clears throat> it's going to be necessary to have this. There's going to have to be some kind of system where it's verified. I think everybody in our network is a little bit perplexed by the way the federal government seems to be at arm's length with this. So my brow remains knitted, but I find out I've got lots of company that there are uh, even within the administration. Does it have something to do with the fact that we've always likened ourselves to, you know, unlike like Europe, we don't require a national ID to be carried. And yet, what is this thing where I have to go, I still don't have the, yeah, the real ID? I mean, is that what it's about? I'm so confused. What else is new? Okay. Here's a paragraph for you. Oh, it's just, yeah, two sentences. The coarse medical treatment that Alexei Navalny, a Russian opposition leader, is receiving in prison poses a lethal risk to his health, his personal doctor told journalists yesterday. The doctor was then arrested along with several reporters. <laughs> laughing. Welcome to Russia. I'll tell you what a country. The doctor says, hey, my my patient is not receiving good care, the doctor says to the reporters. And what do the Russians do? They arrest the doctor and the reporters. God almighty. Hey, you Republicans, you want to know about concerns about freedom? Take a look over there. You know, your pal Putin. I thought you liked the way he ran things. Moscow Mitch, huh? Thought you liked it. And meanwhile, it, it appears that what they're trying to do, I mean, first of all, I don't even understand what he's in for. Uh, he's in for, I guess, not having the good sense to die when Putin poisoned him. He recovered, right? So now they've got him for some kind of parole violation. I, the violation, again, being I think that he didn't die. <laughs> and he's getting, they're going to kill him in there. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll either, they'll kill him through neglect. They'll kill him one way or the other. He's now got numbness in his legs. He's got some kind of respiratory infection. Could be COVID. Who knows? He thinks he has TB. Whatever. This is, uh, you know, is there a country where the justice system actually works? Some work better than others, but I don't know if there's any that have some kind of, you know, mastered it. Clearly, Russia <laughs> has not. Um, 
also came across these two stories about, oh no, what? This is from the Allegheny, Allegheny County. Starting last evening, air quality readings at the Liberty Monitor increased. The health department, okay. So in other words, don't breathe. Our air is so, on a beautiful day like this, see, Pittsburghers were conditioned to believe that if the sky was blue, the air was clean. So not true. Says here the county has contacted U.S. Steel because they're responsible for spewing this shit into our air. I have an app on my phone. I'm still talking, but I'm going to get it. That tells me whether or not I should go out and breathe because I have a lot of respiratory issues. And I have little doubt that I have these issues because I live here. Well, they're telling me that where I am, it's, it's moderate. Okay. Allegheny Health, this, 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 this just came out, a, uh, a release from them. We have requested that U.S. Steel delay bringing their batteries online until air quality improves, and we have a better understanding of what caused this unhealthy situation, particulate matter at PM 2.5. I'm so sad. Yeah, that's right. Lou writes, I'm utterly baffled that no one has, or at least I haven't heard it, made the comparison of COVID and the public health and, and smoking in the public health. One has a mysterious unseen culprit that can affect those standing next to them. The other has a mysterious unseen culprit that can affect those standing next to them. What am I missing? Yeah, and we passed all kinds of stuff, right? Laws, can't smoke, can't smoke here, can't smoke there. Huh. And Lou says, yeah, and you can include these polluters. We are idiots. Well, I'll quote Bob Dylan. We're only pawns, pawns in their game. Aubrey. Bree sent me an article that just shows how screwed up our healthcare system is. Uh, I, I, I don't have time to read it now, but apparently there's a $2 drug that millions of people are not being told exists, and instead they're being put on a $3,000 drug. Isn't that something? Uh, be quiet. I'm on the phone. That's my landline. Why do I have a landline? I don't even answer it. The answering machine on it doesn't work. It, it, somebody calling me on that just gets a mailbox that's full. 
and I never even look. It just rings. Why do I keep paying for that? Because I'm just, I don't know, too lazy to get rid of it. You know, um, what are these two inevitable things that we all face, right? Taxes. It is tax season. Uh, although we got till May, right? May 15th. Um, taxes and death, right? There's no avoiding them unless you're a hugely rich corporation or Donald Trump. And then you can definitely avoid taxes and it almost appears like you can avoid death. I don't get that part either. So whatever. But <clears throat> since it's inevitable, I, you know, one way or the other, uh, something's going to get us. But I today read of two people who died in ways that, you know, never in their wildest dreams would they think, I'm going to go out. <laughs> I'm going to go out because my phone dropped under my movie theater seat. And when I tried to get under the seat to retrieve it, the leg rest of the seat came down and hit me in the neck and no one could get it up. No one could get it off my neck. It was stuck and it asphyxiated me. Sort of like having Derek Chauvin sitting on you. That's how a guy died. Can you imagine? I'm sorry. That's not the way anyone wants to go. This happened in uh, England, in Birmingham. And, of course, the theater is being sued. The guy was crushed to death by his movie seat. And to make it even worse, he had paid extra for an extra special seat, right? So there's that one. And then there's another lawsuit. This is how we find out about these things. A family of a California man is uh, is suing, I think it's a minor league baseball team. They don't have any money. Why are you suing them? The Fresno Grizzlies. Uh, no, he didn't get hit by a ball. Um, it was a guy who, his name was Marshall. No, that's the son who's suing. Whatever. The father of the guy who's suing died because he choked to death during a taco eating contest at uh, an event at a Fresno Grizzly game. Now, <laughs> that's not a way to go either. I mean, first of all, public, how do you publicly choke in front of people? Didn't anyone know the Heimlich maneuver? I mean, I don't even understand that. How do you choke to death in that situation? God. Okay. There's some funny stuff here about Mitch McConnell again. It's just beyond belief how the Republicans now 
I hate capitalism. They hate the corporations that they're totally beholden to. Um, let me try to find that for you. Okie dokie dokie dokie. Um, what they're saying is, this is an article from uh, The Intelligencer, you know, written by uh, Jonathan Chait. Um, and it talks about how Mitch McConnell is the guy who sees speech as the most important. Uh, you cannot keep corporations from being able to speak. I mean, he quotes from a speech Mitch gave in 2012 uh, when uh, there was an effort to deny corporations the right to uh, give as much money as they possibly could to the politicians they wanted to get elected. And Mitch is arguing that this is speech. And the Supreme Court upheld that, right? That corporate money is speech, just like corporations are people. Yeah, I don't get either of them. Um, but so that is so bizarre because look where he is now. Because here is McConnell after the corporations spoke, they spoke out against the Georgia law a little late. They spoke out and now he's threatening them, right? Because he doesn't like the content of their speech. And he describes the corporate speech he doesn't like as, quote, a coordinated campaign by powerful and wealthy people to mislead and bully the American people. And he darkly warned the corporations and their speech to stay out of politics. I mean, you, <coughs> I'm going to follow the taco choking guy. I mean, it, you can't believe the absurdity of these 180s. And there's McConnell saying corporations will invite serious consequences if they become a vehicle for far left mobs. Oh yeah, to hijack our country. Uh, Mitch, you think that's a little over the top? Corporations hand in hand with far left mobs? <laughs> oh dear Lord. Ah, uh, it's beyond belief. Um, Republicans are as lost as they can be, and yet, because of the institutional infrastructure, they remain a very powerful entity. The Electoral College, the fact that they have a stranglehold in so many legislatures, uh, the resulting 
uh, gerrymandering that continues that stranglehold. When they actually get to American people voicing their druthers through the ballot box, Americans overwhelmingly say, yeah, we don't want these people. And yet they keep, my God, they control the Senate, although they represent something like 38%. The Republican senators, when they controlled the Senate, and now it's 50-50, they really only represent something like 30, what is it, 38% of the population. And yet they hold 50% of the seats. And that kind of undemocratic craziness is repeated over and over and over again in state legislatures. Wow. So apparently the Wall Street Journal, which I have stopped receiving um, at my own behest. Um, so I'm not getting, I used to get like more of a sense of what the crazed Republicans were saying. And it says here that they, they recently published a column uh, lamenting all of these corporations that are not saying the kinds of things they're supposed to say and not supporting the kinds of politics they're supposed to support. The guy, you know, starts listing the known villains like Delta and Major League Baseball and Coca-Cola. And, and then this guy said, I don't even understand this. And then moving to the bathroom, I encounter my progressive razors. And then goes off on a rant about how some ad that Gillette put out uh, attacked masculinity. Jeez, uh, I don't know. God almighty. Hey, I want to say I thought Aaron Rodgers wasn't as good last night. I felt I, I, I was unhappy as I watched because I thought, geez, I told everybody to watch him. And then I thought he was sort of lackluster. Um, and USA Today rated the five people that have already uh, served as as hosts, uh, substitute hosts after Alex's death. And they put him in the middle. They said the worst was without a doubt, Dr. Oz. Next, Katie Couric. Um, it's just her personality didn't fit the kind of what you'd expected. I don't, I don't know. And then um, they say Rogers, who they didn't say a bad thing about. They just said he was you know, affable, smart, good looking, cool, all the things I said. And then they said, uh, yeah, what's his name? Kent Jennings, who I thought was sort of dry. I didn't, I, I like, definitely like um, Rogers better. And then they said the one, the clear standout is the guy that came in at the last minute because some guest host refused to show. 
worried about COVID. And that is the executive producer, I guess, or the producer of Jeopardy. And he was fantastic. He really was. And it turns out he has hosted some long forgotten quiz show before. So he, it wasn't his first time standing up and doing that kind of thing. So just saying. All right, you guys, I think that does it for moi. Um, and I'll wish you a very happy day in this unseasonable warmth. And uh, I'll be back tomorrow because I'm stuck in a rut. I just keep coming back. Be safe. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.